Reset the podcast is brought to you in association with Liars, the non-alcoholic spirits brand. Whether it's low alcohol or no alcohol, Liars helps you enjoy your classic favourite cocktails. Hello everyone, my name is Suki Thompson. Welcome to Reset, the podcast a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life. I do hope that your journey to feel more connected, more inspired, just a bit more energised starts here. Take a moment now with me to reset. We call this episode Living Between the Windows because it's about how my brilliantly brave business partner, Helen Gorman, has lived her life in between defining moments and events which have shaped her as a mother, a professional and an individual. Whilst the two of us talk almost every day and have worked closely together for many, many years, this conversation opens the door for me to see new parts of a window which makes Helen's light shine so bright. The thread of learning and ambition seems to characterize a lot of Helen's life and something we talk about throughout this episode. Grounded in strong marketing training, we discuss Helen's road to becoming a brilliant client, a strong leader and a credible consultant. Balancing this with her personal passions of photography, the outdoors and exercise. We also talk about another big aspect of her life, the impact becoming a mother had on her perspective and approach to working life and what she gained as well as had to give up throughout this process. We then poignantly discuss the reality of living with an incurable cancer diagnosis and how this affects both how and why Helen continues to work at Let's Reset. She shares her changed outlook on life and living and why, although she lives much more closely to now, her ambitions for the future are still being built up, quite literally, in fact, including taking on a project of constructing a house in Kent countryside. The metaphor Helen has adopted in recent years around living between these windows is really quite apt, because through the moments of very serious challenge and change, which she shares with us, she is a shining example of how we continue to share and shine light through moments of darkness. This episode of Reset the Podcast is, of course, a personal favourite of mine, not just because it's Helen, my business partner, but because Helen embodies everything we talk about at Let's Reset. Being strong, being open, and having time to think about living in the moment. If you enjoyed the podcast, please sign up uh just click the sign up here button because it makes a really big difference to us and please send it on to your friends as well thanks very much hello helen how are you hi suki i'm good thanks well i'm sad we're not in the office sitting next to each other i know typically we did this on a day working from home I know, but that's that's the world we live in now, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, look, you know what question I'm going to ask you? Because we ask it of each other a lot. Uh, on a scale of one to ten, how energised do you feel today, Helen? 
Oh, well, it's got to be an eight today after a four day weekend. I think if I was anything lower than an eight, that would be really bad, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be unfortunate, wouldn't it? But it was a lovely, lovely weekend. Um, look, we're going to say we're going to talk today. We've got a great title for this podcast. It's called Living Between the Windows. Yeah. Why, why is it called that, Helen? So I think as we go through the conversation this afternoon, that will become more evident. But if I look at my life, um, it really does divide up both from a work perspective and personal perspective into lots of different chapters. Um, And I will I'll talk about it a bit later. But living through the windows and living between the windows is um, a phrase that I have been using more recently. So all will all be revealed a little bit later on. Okay. Um, look, let's start where I often start, which is a bit about you and where you grew up and, you know, um, what was it like when you were young? Yeah, so I grew up in the north of England, um, in Lancashire, near the beach. And um, I think kind of quite rarely back in that time, I had a mum who worked. Um, so it was me, my brother, my mum and dad. Um, my dad was a banker um, and my mum worked in the bank as well. And she loved being a mom, um, but she loved her job as well. So I grew up with both parents working, which I think in the 1970s wasn't that common. No, it wasn't actually. Well, not when you've got a mom and a dad. You know, my mom worked a bit. Um, well, she'd worked. She worked at school. But yeah. uh, my parents were divorced when I was young. So it yeah. is unusual. Did it give you a feel of that you were going to definitely go into a career? Did you get that from an early age? Not necessarily at that early age, but I think I was so proud of her in how she managed my brother, me, my dad, because it was really traditional then. So she did everything Mm -hmm. at home as well as working. And she had loads of hobbies as well. So it was more about her can do attitude and her energy, actually, that was more inspiring rather than me going, I definitely want to be like that when I'm older. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Gosh, that sounds sounds a bit like you, actually. You know, already I can see I can see your mom and you. That, that's yeah. really interesting. And is that also where you kind of love the um, swimming and outdoors? And you know, you, you love being outside, but you also like you're going about to go on a surfing holiday, aren't you? But you know, you're you're like that, aren't you? Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm not a member of a gym. I love out being outdoors and outdoor exercise. And when I was two, my mum and I were on the front page of the local paper um, because she was swimming with me, which again, back then, I mean, everyone takes their baby swimming now. But back then, when you were that young, it wasn't that common. But she loved to swim. I've always loved the water. Um, so this is really cute black and white photo of her and I, although she's in the most atrocious 1970s swimming hat. Um, and so, yeah, I got my I got my love of the outdoors and um, and swimming from her for sure. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, we need to see that picture. We definitely need to see that picture. <laughs> but that, and, yeah, anyway. Um, and then, so what was school like? What were you like at school? Were you clever? Um, I I think I would say I was averagely clever, but. I worked really hard at school because I wanted to do well. And I think I think that comes from within you. I don't think necessarily you can be coached to have that 
work ethic. I, I think it's inbuilt in some and it's not in others. And I've seen that in my family. I've seen it in my friends. I've seen it in my work colleagues. And so I definitely believe that you don't have to be the smartest person on the planet. But if you work really hard, then actually you can get to where you, you wanted to want to go. So I was very determined that I was going to be one of the first people in my family to go to university. So you know, did my GCSEs, did A-levels, got to university and went to Manchester. So I stayed up north, it was about an hour from our family home, where I went to do biology and pharmacology um, for my degree in Manchester. So loved science, was good at science. Um, I'd wanted to be a medic, but I wasn't quite academic enough to to make it um, and as you know my son's doing medicine now so I'm kind of secretly frustrated that he's doing what I always wanted to do but I'm very glad that someone in the family's been clever enough to do it um, but yeah I, I, I went for a three-year science degree at Manchester which I absolutely loved. Yeah I can see that and I can see where you you know you've got that lovely balance of logic and magic in you mm. you have a really logical mind but you are actually very creative too so when how did you get into marketing because that's been the area you've been in for most of your career really yeah it, it is and that point about creativity is really important so the the only club that I went to at school was photography club and my dad loved photography to the point he used to take ages to take family photos and we'd all get so frustrated because he's have to position us all correctly before he'd take the shot and of course back in those days you didn't know what you were going to get so he had to do each shot about 10 times but he bought me my first camera it was a Kodak camera for my sixth birthday <laughs> and I joined the photography um, club at school in the days where there was a dark room and you had to develop your own photographs and I learned and, and there's a timing when you put the, the photograph in the in the developer um, and if you go one elephant two elephant three elephant it's the perfect timing to develop your picture and no one does that now do we because it's all, all digital but back in the yeah. in the day so you're right it's kind of mix of science and logic because I did a science degree or science and magic I did a science degree but loved creativity so I came out of university knowing that I didn't really want a career in science but actually not knowing what the hell I was going to do so I wasn't one of these people who knew what I wanted to do. So somebody said to me, oh, with your background, why don't you go into medical sales, go into pharmaceutical sales? Mm -hmm. And so without really thinking about it, I got my first job down in London. So having lived up north all of my life, moved to the smoke um, to do a, um, a sales job for a pharmaceutical company and my sales patch was central London so I was given a car I was given an A to Z because this was before the days of sat nav oh and I was given a target of how many doctors I had to go and speak to every day and talk about the products I was like well it doesn't get much more scary than that going where the hell am I driving to oh my god I've got to see 10 doctors a day how am I going to do that and I did it for about six months uh, and found that I was actually quite good at it. But after, after six months, the, the sales and marketing director came out with me for the day and I was super nervous. I was like, oh God, I'm gonna have to be good today. I've got to hit my targets. I don't want to end up one of those days when you go in and every doctor's receptionist says, no, not today, get out. And they treat you yes, in a yes. lowly way. So he came out with me, his name was Jonathan. 
um, he came out with me and we were just chatting all day as you know, you're driving around the streets of London. And at the end of the day, um, he said to me, do you want to come into the office for a few weeks and try marketing? And I was like, yeah, okay. And so that's how my career in marketing started because literally two weeks later, I went into head office um, and I started in the marketing function as a very junior marketing assistant. And he'd said, come in for four weeks. And I never left. Um, and that was how my career in marketing started. Oh, that's lovely. I love that story. Honestly, I think selling to doctors must be one of the worst jobs ever. So the fact that you even managed that for six months think it's extraordinary I mean oh dear you've got to be pretty you've got to be pretty tenacious and have a pretty yes. good skin and then you've really got to know your stuff because you cannot talk about a medicine or a drug in front of a doctor if you really don't know your stuff so yeah it's you've always got to be on your on your a-game when you're uh, when you're talking to them for sure yeah yeah and then you spent um well, sort of over eight years, I think, at GlaxoSmithKline, um, at a time when they were going through quite a lot of transformation. It was you know, a brilliant place to be a marketeer in many ways and learn your craft and, and just kind of grow up and start, you know, developing your career. What was it like there? Oh, I loved my time there. I was, I was there for 10 years and I absolutely loved it. I, I learned so much because they had the most brilliant marketing academy training program that had so many different modules and it actually took you five years to go through everything. So it was what I would call proper marketing training. And for those people who listen to Mark Ritson, love him or hate him, you know, he talks about how we don't train marketers anymore and how everyone thinks they can be a marketer and the importance of training. And I really, really believe that because I had the most fantastic opportunity to learn everything from accounting and how to manage P&L, which back then wasn't so important for a marketer. But as I went through my career and now, you know, you've got to be as astute as a finance person as you've got to be brilliantly inspiring and, and creative. Um, but all the way through to creative training. And I've, I've talked to you about this um, once before, but there was the most brilliant part of the GlaxoSmithKline creative marketeer training where you went away for a week, a whole week. And it was about learning how to be a great client for your agencies. Now, I think many agencies listening to this podcast will be going, God, we need to bring back that training. Oh, no. God, can you imagine a whole week doing that? A whole week. And it was the most amazing piece of training. It was run by a guy called Roger Clayton. And you went to his house on the Isle of Wight at the most beautiful farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. And I went, my training was in the winter. So mm. you were exposed to the elements, roaring log fires. And his wife cooked you three meals a day. I mean, I think they took, you know, they talk about the Google stone when you join Google. Well, I tell you what, the learn how to be a great client with Roger Clayton. You put on a stone in about a week. But he went through everything that he believed because he'd spent his time in agency life mm -hmm. that you needed to do as a client, not only to serve your own business well, but to be the client that got the best work from the agency. And that actually was quite a tipping point in my career because it was one of the things that I decided I was going to try and be brilliant at. I was going to try and be a brilliant client 
to get brilliant creative work from the art of knowing how to write a brilliant creative brief, um, the real skill of knowing how to behave in a room when you've got creatives presenting to you, um, which is almost like them sharing their newborn baby with you that they've been up all night with for three weeks. And yeah. how, do you, how do you respond to that in the right way? To giving really clear feedback and getting great work. And so my time at, at GSK really taught me the the proper skills of how to be an all-rounded marketeer and if you you know if you think of the kind of top one or two things that you were taught then or you've learned and you put in place what would they be clarity of strategy which i talk to you about all the time and yes, I, a lot i talk to all of our clients about having a really clear strategy I, 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 and by that i really mean one or two really big smart objectives you know where are you going in the next three years having that is one of the things I learned at GSK and it stayed with me all through my career um, and I'm still horrified to this day actually how many businesses don't do it properly um, how yeah. many people jump to tactics and plan without actually doing the diagnosis and the strategy so I learned that and the other thing that I learned and it's something that has taken me 20 years to get good at and I'm still learning is how to balance trusting your instinct and your intuition when you are judging creative work versus what you're also trying to achieve commercially and tangibly for the organization and I think if we all think about the great pieces of communication that have both been awarded for their brilliant creativity in the genre but also their brilliant effectiveness. I reckon for sure they've had that mix of gut, visceral gut feel. I just yeah. know that people are going to love this versus a slightly more logical scientific analysis of it as well. Yeah, that, you know, they, that's so interesting. I think, you know, it's, it's a conversation I had with both Pete Markey, who's now at Boots, and Martin George from John Lewis, you know, similarly that kind of Where's the balance and where's that moment? And, and you still often don't know, do you? Even if you think you've got the most amazing campaign. And I think particularly now with social media and so many other channels, just sometimes it goes beyond everyone's expectations. You, you kind of have a, you do have a feeling, don't you? And you can see, but, you know, sometimes it, it just exceeds expectation. Yeah. And I think for me, the other thing I always talk to people about is, are you really clear on the idea you're buying? You're not buying a piece of work. You're not buying a campaign. What's the idea that is going to be able, particularly these days, to connect everything across all of the disciplines that marketeers are having to grapple with? But what, what's the idea? Because you can reject the execution, but love the idea. And so that was always that was also something that I was taught was when you when you have an agency presenting to you, always ask them what the idea is before they present the work because then you can react to the idea and it's something that I try and teach people when I'm working with people because again I, I don't I don't think we teach marketers enough about how to how to buy great creative work. No I think you're absolutely right absolutely right and it's um, you know and it is one of those things that you are really really good at but it's, it's fascinating isn't it hearing you just talk about your time at SmithKline that training you had you know, for me, you know, like you, I've had loads of different training courses over the years. But for me, the one that stuck 
for me, probably a similar age actually, um, was when we went to publicists in Paris to um, Michel Levy's, uh, well, it wasn't his house, but you know, we were very much at the head office. We were all mm. given a mentor for a fortnight. The head of L'Oreal came over and talked about, for us, how to be a good agency, what clients wanted. And it's that, you know, and creativity. And it was like a kind of mini, you know, like a mini MBA for an agency in a way. Um, but there was just something about having somebody special taking an interest in you, yeah. senior people taking time for young people in the industry that clearly stuck with you, clearly. I mean, it made such a difference to me and, and gave me a love of the industry as well as the agency, as well as the work we were doing far beyond, I think, anything I'd done before. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is fascinating, isn't it? And I think that we'll come on and talk a little bit about Let's Reset. But one of the things I love about the feedback from Let's Reset is just the outpouring of emotion about it. Yeah. Um, You know, know, and we will talk about that. But I just think, you know, we remember those moments so clearly. How many other loads of training have we done where you go, frankly, that was okay, or I don't even really remember it. Remember it. Yeah, exactly. It's quite yeah, vanilla. Yeah. Yeah. So um, during that time, is, is that when you got married and had children? Yeah. So I got married when I was at GlaxoSmithKline. And then it's not, it's, it was a great organization in that it was very performance driven. It was a really strong performance culture, um, but you got rewarded for it. So at the age of 29, I was the youngest marketing category director that they'd had and then fell pregnant with Dylan, my first child. I was like, oh my God, how, how am I going to cope with this? And I'd all, I'd always wanted children. I would I'd actually always wanted a big family. I'd always wanted four boys. We'll talk about that. Um, yeah. We'll talk about that a bit more later, but I'd all, I always wanted four boys. Um, and then I fell pregnant with Dylan, had nine months off. Um, well, actually there's a, there's a funny story about Dylan because I hadn't even gone on my maternity leave and this is a naivety, isn't it? When you're pregnant with your first child. So I was like, oh, I don't need long before the baby's due. I'll leave three weeks before. So I planned to leave three weeks before and people are saying, you might need to leave a bit earlier than that. Um, and he was born five weeks early. So I hadn't even left and gone on my maternity leave at GlaxoSmithKline and Dylan came along. He had totally different ideas. Um, and that taught me probably it was one of those times where I was like, yeah, OK, you're not going to be in control of your life as much as you thought you were going forward. Um, this is totally, totally out of your comfort zone. Oh, and out of your control. Yeah. Blimey. No, yeah, I would definitely wouldn't. Well, I was. But isn't it interesting? I was I, I tell this story all the time. My children are absolutely horrified. I was walking up a mountain in Hong Kong the day before Jasmine was born. I yeah. had no idea you shouldn't do that I must have been five hours away from Matilda hospital yeah and, and then my waters broke the next day and I'm like oh that's what that means oh like why haven't I been up the Blumen mountain yeah well I had the afternoon off work I had the afternoon of work to go to my antenatal class and I never came back to work because I went to my antenatal class and we went out for lunch because it was the last antenatal class before the babies were born and my waters broke at the lunch table with nine pregnant women and literally, literally that classic of the guy behind the bar going, do you need hot towels? And then these yeah. nine pregnant women going, right, we need to get her to hospital. 
three of them took me and we walked in they're like which one of you's having the baby and they're like it's her and she's supposed to be the last one out of all of us having the baby and um I, I never went back to work and, and started my maternity leave so um so yeah still okay was he was he very little was he all right um he was in preemie care for for two weeks so he didn't come home for two oh. weeks um he okay. was yeah he was he was quite small but he was he was fine he was just he was just small and so I had nine months off and totally totally fell in love with motherhood and actually didn't want to go back to work so I'd had this amazing career amazing job and I think I cried for two weeks before I went back I just did not want to go back to work really didn't um and then you know you go back don't you and you remind you're reminded of some of the things that you love about your job Mm. I went back to the same job that I was doing before I had him and that was quite hard and that was a really challenging point of my career because the demands of that level of job with a newborn were really really hard And at times I just felt like I was doing neither well. I felt like I was neither there for my job or there for my baby. And, you know, now we have flexible working, don't we? And all the brilliant things that have happened for working parents through COVID, none of that really existed. You know, Dylan was born in 2002 and there wasn't really that flexibility. I didn't work from home. There wasn't that opportunity to, you know, to even reduce hours a little bit and, and do part time. So, so that was that was quite a challenge. That's really hard. And were you living out of London by then? Were you in, still in London? No, still in London. So I lived fifteen minutes from the office. So the logistics, you know, logistics were, you know, as easy as they're going to get. I just think for me, the emotional pull of being a mom the the demands of a big job you know in a FTSE top 10 organization was was quite difficult and then it did it did settle down and I found my I found my groove and I think that's when I found that things don't have to be perfect um, and I had a brilliant boss who said to me Gourmet he always used to call me Gourmet Gourmet mm. we need to have it 80% perfect but 100% executed and if we start living by those rules you'll take some of the pressure off yourself and and he was so right he's one of the best bosses that I've that I've ever had a guy called Peter Harding and um we we kind of navigated a slightly different way of working that made it made it feel better for me and were there other women at a similar level or a more senior level that that were juggling a child and work that you could have as a sort of role model yes well not necessarily as a role model but as a peer for support so one of my yeah. best one of my best friends worked for GlaxoSmithKline um and her baby um he was born literally 17 hours before Dylan was born um wow. And that was a classic story because she was in hospital in labour, not knowing that I'd gone in hospital in labour. And I walked in to say hello to her in a hospital gown. She's like, what the hell are you doing here? You're not, you, what, why are you visiting me? I was like, I'm not visiting. I'm having the baby as well. And she was like, holy crap. And <laughs> 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 so we shared a nanny. We decided we weren't going to do that. So we shared a nanny. Ah, did you? I was going to say, what did you do for childcare? Because yeah, we both we both worked um, at GlaxoSmithKline, and in fact, her husband did as well. My husband didn't. So three out of the four of us worked for GlaxoSmithKline, and we shared a nanny. 
Um, and she had a similarly big job on the oral care side of the business. And so we used to sort of, you know, rant to each other about how difficult it was, how nobody understood how difficult it was, as if we were the first women ever having babies and juggling big jobs. Um, but it was really good to have someone to, to kind of go through it with because it did make it it did make it easier. And did you do any international travel or did your husband do any international travel or were you based predominantly in the UK? Um, I was based absolutely 100% in the UK. My, my, my role was UK. And to be honest, I couldn't have done a job with travel with a newborn. But my husband travelled quite a lot. So that was that that was quite that was quite challenging. But no, I did. I got into my groove and I really started to enjoy it again and then fell pregnant with Connor, my, my second child, um, who was born exactly two years after after his brother. So, um, yeah, two, two under two, two boys under two, which was uh, which was interesting. Wow. Yeah. And, and then what was that like? Was it easier from a work perspective? So when we talked about this podcast being called Living Between the Windows, I think this is the first point when that really happened to me. So when I was pregnant with Connor, I was diagnosed with breast cancer so really really young and in fact I I heard this stat the other day that only one percent of breast cancers are in women under the age of 34 so I was really on I was really unlucky to be 32 33 33 really really um really young and obviously not what you're expecting to hear when I was 28 weeks pregnant when I was I was diagnosed and so how were you diagnosed because you know there's when you're when you're pregnant there's a lot going on looking at the baby yeah what happened how did they find out I I found a lump and they weren't that concerned about it I, I probably found it when I was what 18 19 weeks pregnant but they were just you know so many so many changes yeah 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 and then I, I don't know, I had a sixth sense. I just went back to my GP who was absolutely brilliant. And she was like, well, maybe we should just go and get this checked out. And so I went to the clinic for the day to get it checked out and they did an ultrasound. And then they took me into a room to do a biopsy. And, and I kind of knew because they kept me there all day. And then they said, is anybody with you? And for anyone who's been through a diagnosis, as soon as they say, is anybody with you? It's normally not going to be the easiest, easiest news. Um, so I was diagnosed with with stage three um, breast cancer. The tumor was about six centimeters. It was really big and it had grown really quickly because it was estrogen sensitive. And of course, when you're pregnant, you've got so much estrogen. So in a in a weird way, you know, the the, the hormones that were growing my baby were sort of killing me. It was a, it was a really, really hard thing to to get my head around. And and you couldn't have treatment until he was born, could you? So you had to, did you have to wait all that time? No, no, this was the really, this was the really sort of startling point um, about it when I literally, and my husband was saying, nearly fell off the chair. And my oncologist said, this is so aggressive, we have to start treating you tomorrow. Um, And I started chemotherapy, literally the next day. And at that point, there was very little data on chemotherapy when you're pregnant. 
but they mm-hmm. said well you're 28 weeks pregnant so a lot of the formation has happened you know your baby's now just laying down fat you know but we we have we have no choice mm-hmm. and of course this is this you know Connor's now 17 and a half so back then 28 weeks was still really early so they didn't want to deliver him because there was a chance he might not survive so they were like you have no option you'll have chemo will induce the baby in between chemo cycles when you're 37 weeks pregnant and then we'll operate after you've had the baby because they didn't want to operate in case I went into into labor. How did you cope with all of that going on? I just I can't imagine you know you've got Dylan at home yeah got a, a husband that's traveling anyway you've got a baby you're having chemo I mean you've got that elation of having a baby and yeah. then all that fit I can't what, how did you get your head around it um I don't think I did actually at the time I really don't think I did I think I went into a coping mechanism taking literally each day as it came and not really thinking I mean I was I was so pissed off there's the only way to put it that this had happened to me at what should be a joyous time of my yeah, life yeah I really was. I was so angry that it had happened to me, but I, I, I don't think I did have a coping mechanism other than getting through one day at a time. I had the most brilliant oncologist and I um, work, Klein were absolutely brilliant. Um, and they just stepped in. They sorted everything out medically and they said, you do whatever you need to do and we will we will support you and then went into treatment um and then typical typical connor who's turned out to be a very stubborn child um (laughs) didn't didn't wait to be induced at 37 weeks which was in between my chemo cycles when your immunity comes up before it goes down um and he came spontaneously into the world um two days after i'd had a chemo cycle which is possibly the worst time to go into labor Honestly, honestly. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, of course, Connor did. So how how early was he then? So um he came he came just before 37 weeks. Um but he was he was nearly eight pounds, so he was huge baby, even even that early. Um mm. and that was a real joyous moment in what had been a very, very stressful time because he was fine, because you I know I was so worried. We were all really worried. Yeah, of course and I think behind the scenes, my whole oncology team were really worried because there really wasn't that much data about pregnant women and chemotherapy back in no. uh, back in 2004 when he was born. So it was such a big relief. And I just remember I sat in the hospital with him and just stared at him. I think more so than I'd done with Dylan and just thought, oh my God you're here and you're okay and you know that's 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 absolutely fine and then the startling moment for all the amazing hospital staff who had delivered him for me um and they said you know let's make you really comfortable you know let, let let's kind of you know get you fresh pillows and I sat up and there was all my dark hair on the pillow because of course I was having chemo and my hair was all falling apart falling out and it was just that really weird juxtaposition of here I am having given birth to this healthy and everyone there was that moment when everyone looked and nobody said anything. And there was just that moment of, OK, yeah, this is what we're dealing with. So hard, isn't it? So yeah. Hard. yeah. So how much treatment did you then have after Connor was born? So I had then two years of treatment. I was one of the first people to have Herceptin 
on a long-term basis. And we we talk about, you know, Herceptin and breast cancer is now so well known, but back then it was a newly approved treatment. And Mm -hmm. so I went on a trial of women um, to have it for two years to see if that would have a better a better outcome. So yeah, I had two years of treatment. I decided with the most amazing support from Glaxo to leave GlaxoSmithKline. Um, I reevaluate. I had a newborn, I had a two-year-old, I had two years. That's a massive reason, isn't it? It was like, I'm just not going to carry on doing what I've been doing because why would I? We left London and we moved to the Kent countryside to have Mm -hmm. a slightly simpler way of life and fresh air and green fields and trees and for the boys to have a slightly different, different life. And I picked up photography again. And so the photography story kind of weaves in and out of my Mm -hmm. life. And I went to train as a portrait photographer at the London School of Photography. And so while I stayed at home with the boys and when my treatment finished after two years, I became a portrait photographer down in Kent and I used my beautiful garden as my studio. So it was very messy, not choreographed, what I would call real life black and white photography. And when I go around to some of my friends' houses now in Kent, they've got my photographs of them mm. and their kids on the wall. Well, so, that's nice. Yeah. So I so I took four years out in the end um, after leaving after leaving Black. So I had a a four year. I wouldn't call it a break. Um, no. I would I would just call it a different a, a different chapter. Yeah. Gosh. Absolutely. And what did you learn about yourself during that time? I. I learned how resilient I was because I was pretty exhausted having gone through all of that treatment with a newborn and a two-year-old. I didn't want a nanny because I wanted to look after them myself. Having been a working mom and then suddenly having the privilege to be at home with them, I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't want someone else looking after my children. No matter how knackered I am, while I'm not working, I want to be there and do all of these things with them. So I I learned that I was pretty tough, that I was pretty resilient and that I could I could learn different things. So the photography thing was quite a scary thing to do. But I learned that I could I learned that I could do it. So, yeah, it was really good fun. That's so nice. And do you do photography still now as a more of a hobby? I do. My boys as teenagers hate it now. And they're literally like, oh, for God's sake, mum, please don't capture this. Please don't take a photograph of this. And you know, I, I'm not a prolific social media poster. I post a few things, but for my own library, I take a lot of photographs. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Yeah. It's so nice, isn't it? Yeah. The rest of my family are, my sister's a photographer um, and uh, my brother and mum are really good. And I just, I'm really annoying. <laughs> and, um, but it's lovely, isn't it? I love looking at my photos probably more than anything else, right? Really, yeah. I think. Um, but you then sort of had another reset and you did go back to a more formal marketing role. You went to Brit- I, to Brit- I went I went to Britfix Soft Drinks. What was, what was that reset? What was happening then to make you do that? So Connor started reception and I was like, OK, it's now or never. I'm either going to go back and pick up my career or I'm never going to go back into that world. Because I think, you know, a four year gap 
you know, irrespective of the of the cancer and the treatment that I'd had, you know, a four year gap, you can explain that I'd had two young children, you know, I'd done something else, I'd retrained. But I think when it becomes much longer than that, I think you become too far removed from the industry and things change too much. So for me, him starting reception was a catalyst to say, you know what, I'm going to go back and restart my career. So I went to Britvic Soft Drinks, um, brilliant, um, entrepreneurial, um, quite different to, to Glaxo. Um, when, I, when I joined, you know, they had an ambition to be a FTSE 200. They've now achieved that and some, which is mm-hmm. absolutely amazing. So it changed a lot along the seven years that, that I was there. But working in soft drinks was really good fun. I'm working on brands like Robinson's and Fruit Shoot and Pepsi. I mean, what great brands to work on. And yeah, I I really enjoyed going back. And the children were a bit older. It was was still a bit of a juggle. But Mm. interestingly, given what had happened to me, my family were really, really important to me in a way that when you've been through a sort of life death experience, you really find out what matters to you. And it doesn't matter what it is, it's different for different people. So what's right for me doesn't necessarily mean it's right for someone else. But I decided that I was going to be a bit stronger from a work perspective. And so I sat on the GB exec team. And I remember vividly one day sitting in a board meeting all day and I got up at quarter past five because I had quite a long commute. I used to commute around the M25 every day. And I said, I'm really sorry, I have to go. And I didn't use the children as an excuse, but that was my reason why I wanted to go because I wanted to be home and the nanny had to had to go. And it was it was nerve wracking to do at the time. And I was yeah. like, oh, my God, am I really going to do this? But then actually I was known over time in the right way for being a really good role model for working mums in that organisation. And I just became far more ruthless with my prioritisation in work and what I had to achieve while I was there. Cut out some social stuff, cut out some networking stuff because you can't do everything. Um, yeah. I managed to do a really good job, but set my boundaries in a much better way for me as a marketeer and as a mum. It's interesting you say that. I think that's the thing that I noticed. You know, look, by the time I'd had my children, I was then working for myself. So, you know, it's it's very different to working in a PLC, particularly in that kind of PLC. But you still have the demands of clients going, but I need to meet you at 7 o'clock in the morning or whenever you want to do. Um, But I think what was interesting for me was I found it hard to juggle But looking back on it, because I kept going like you, you know, I I moved countries and stuff, but I then found from when they were sort of six or seven, eight, nine, that that second part of their education so much easier because I'd gone back earlier. I'd done the things I needed to do. I'd kept in a rhythm. And I actually feel quite sorry for quite a lot of my girlfriends now. And Mm. certainly in the last five years or so, because my my two are a bit older than your two, but you know, where they can't go back to doing anything and there isn't anything. And that's really hard. And I just wonder whether you felt the same. Yeah, I I, I think so. But I, I think for me, I, I did feel like I got the balance probably about as good as it was ever going to get. If I wanted a job that was interesting enough to give up some of the things that I had to give up, but also not a job where everything stopped with me that I couldn't leave and be with my children so I because I thought I got the balance right 
um, it it worked for me. Um, and then and then we met, and I decided after after twenty years in corporate client world, I was going to move into consultancy, and that's yeah. when we started working together at Oystercatcher. And it's so interesting because I met you through BBH. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and they said to me, you know, I was at Oystercatcher at the time. Can I meet Helen? And I was always asked to meet loads of clients. And they said literally one of the best clients we've ever worked with so I think you know going right back to your ambition of being a brilliant client with brilliant work you know BBH are a tough agency and they're not always nice about all their clients of course because not everyone is a good client actually um but that's absolutely the way I was introduced to you which is which is lovely isn't it it, it is. I remember Nick Gill, who used to be the ECD there, and he said, and I, I, you know, you'll either love this or you'll hate this, but he said, clients get the agency team and work that they deserve. And I, I think that's quite fair, actually. It is fair. And actually, you know, I used to say this to clients all the time, you can't all work with BBH because no. if you're a, you know, if you're brand or you're people or there's loads of reasons why you have to work with a Ford Fiesta. And, yeah. and actually, you know, nothing wrong with that. It's a great car. But if you want to work with a Ferrari, you've got to have amazing brands. You've got to have brilliant people. You've got to have a great creative eye. You've got to have that mix of kind of magic and logic. And there's not many clients. And, you know, I'm just, we're using BBH as, as the example because they were the ones you were working with. But there are a very few agencies for what I would call elite clients, elite brands. Um, and you were with one of them. And I think, you know, it, it's it's kind of testimony for both of you, really. Yeah, no, it's a part of my career I loved, actually. I loved working with 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 them. Actually, I, I worked with them and I worked with the AM partnership as well. And it was a really great part of my career where, you know, we had a lot of fun. We worked yeah. really, really hard, but we had a lot of fun in the process as well. Yeah, I do know. It's, it's so true, isn't it? And it was amazing, really, that we hadn't met before because no. we were on that side of creating a lot of those partnerships and the fun. It was amazing, amazing, amazing time. And it was great fun. And I think even like you, and it's interesting you said, the bit that went for me was the chatting at the end of the day. I did virtually no international travel. I, I ran the Hong Kong office, but I didn't do any travel. All my travel was only at the holidays. And again, you know, they were our offices, so I could kind of coordinate that. Um, I didn't do anything like the networking that other people had to do. And I was really, really focused on it because you don't have that luxury. And it, you know, it would have been so nice to get to the end of the day and go, oh, let's just have a drink and a chat. I never had that. I just never had that luxury. No, but it goes back to you. You, you can't have everything. You have to no. give up something. No, exactly. And like you felt, you know, pretty good balance, pretty mm. good balance on, on what we were doing. So then consultancy, it's a funny old world, isn't it? And I think, you know, for you, you, you did some work with Kodak. That must have been quite fun. Um, well, that was fun because the work was in Bahrain and Dubai. So that was really interesting. It was like, wow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, that was when I travel. Yeah, exactly. And then you worked um, as a consultant at Oyster Catchers and ran our consultancy division. What was it like being a consultant versus being a client? Because it's it's quite a big reset, isn't it? It's so much harder and so much more different than people think. And the first, I think, the first proper client meeting I went in to do in my literally first consultant role was MS 
I mean, you don't get a bigger client than that. Um, and I think all I can say about myself is I was pretty shit. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, I, I've been a client. I thought I could do this because it's very, it, it's very, very different. And I think for a lot of people, it, it's too hard to adapt. Uh, and a lot of people either don't enjoy it or they fail. But, but going back to that point about me kind of being quite tenacious and quite resilient, I learned really quickly what you needed to do differently to be a consultant versus a client. And then actually pretty quickly, if you can get that balance right, the, the brilliant thing about having been a client for so long and going into consultancy is if you can get those consultancy aspects right, your believability in front of a client is so much better because you, they know you've sat in their shoes and they know that you've experienced many of the challenges that they're going through. So it was really, really different. But I did it because, you know, I, I'd worked in FMCG all my career and I wanted to experience different sectors. I wanted yeah. to experience retail and finance, you know, and leisure. And it gave me the opportunity to do all of those things. But I had to turn it around from bringing pretty shit to pretty good quite quickly. Otherwise, I think I'd probably have got fired. <laughs> well, do you know what? And, it, and it's so interesting you say that because in my mind, you know, because you were at the post office through oyster catchers before that. So in my mind, you kind of have been a consultant, but you're right, working in a business, even if you're only a consultant in a business, you're not a full full time FTE is different from being a consultant on a fixed term contract with measurable outcomes. Uh, and, you know, and actually there was we had a lot to do. Yeah. Uh, and it was the post office was pretty challenging, but but what MS were trying to do was really tough. And I think the culture made it very tough. It, yeah, it did. It's one of the most challenging projects that, that I've run and everybody learned a lot. And it's a thing that we, we all need to keep on learning to, to make ourselves better. But for sure, working on a business is very different to working in a business because what you are required to bring is very, very different. Yeah, no, I can see that. Absolutely can see that. Um, and then so we did that. And then and then we set up Let's Reset. We did. So, and that's really hard because I think, you know, I've said lots of companies and, you know, so starting from nothing with nothing um, is always hard, but it's sort of expected and it's a consultancy kind of role. Uh, yeah. I've got to say this has been the hardest one I've ever done. Yeah. Um, but what was it like for you? What was the what were the thought patterns behind it? So, again, this is another living between the windows moment for me, having always worked in, you know, corporate life and then you know, consultancy is is a fairly safe space to work in as well. But setting something up from zero is, is pretty daunting and exciting at the same time. And then literally three months after we set up going into the pandemic, I think we were both oh my god what what the hell do we do now but by that point we were in it and I know that we both thought we've we've really got to give this a go and we've really got to be 
decisive and brave and adaptable and flexible and if I look at some of the things that we were doing at the beginning of the pandemic you know we look back at them now and go well we're not doing anything like that anymore we've changed so much and we've learned so much and and evolved so much so I think the first year was pretty terrifying but but pretty exciting as well Mm, yeah yeah and then you had another reset and I remember it so well because we got to the end of that first year and we we were able to meet because we couldn't meet because of COVID so you're you're in your home I'm down in Cornwall Bo's somewhere else David's jet I mean they're all ever all over the place yeah and we were working with people we'd never met yeah or you'd certainly never met yeah um and then we got together and we went yep you know, we've done it. We're we're on our way. This is really good. You know, you'd had quite a difficult, again, personal life. Yeah. Um, you know, we've both been through divorces. Yeah. Um, and 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 then what happened? So, I mean, as you say, we were we were starting. We were just starting to do really well. We were winning some amazing clients, and it had been blood, sweat, and tears, hadn't it, for 15 months to win some of those amazing clients. So we were just getting to that point when we're at that fork in the road. You know, do you go left and give up or do you go right because you really believe it? And we were definitely going right and we had some really great clients. And then through, through lockdown, like everyone, I had replaced my commute for exercise, my love of the outdoors. So I'd run every day. Um, which, you know, apart from when I have to go into the office really early, I've run every day for, for 30 years. Um, and I'd done lots of yoga as well. Um, but I was really achy. And I was like, well, maybe I'm just getting old. Maybe, maybe I've done too much. And so a bit unlike me, I, I ignored it for a while. But then the, the aches didn't get any better. And so I was like, you know what, I need to go and do something about this. And then fast forward to the 18th of November 2020, I found myself back in my oncologist's office. Um, 17 years after I'd been there initially, um, weirdly with exactly the same team. Charles, the most amazing oncologist, same oncologist, but Julie, Dawn, the whole same team that looked after me when I was pregnant with Connor. And I hadn't, I hadn't really thought too much about going into that, into that room. I had loads of scans. And in fact, that morning, I remember going for a run before I went up to London, the 18th of November. So it was a winter run. It was bloody freezing. And in the back of my mind, I kind of thought, got this really horrible feeling this might be my last run I, it was just a real sixth sense that I had anyway I went in to see Charles and Charles is brilliant I mean oncologists are brilliant how they're trained to deliver news I think is absolutely world class um mm. he said your your cancer's back at which point I'd sort of had an idea in the back of my mind but you don't really think about it too much um, because I'd been going back to see him every year and every year that I was clear, I was sort of ticking another year off going, this is amazing. I've been clear so long now. Yeah. Unbeknown to me, every year that I'd been going in, he was like, oh God, okay, we're getting to a point where this is going to come back. And he'd never told me that. Really? Did he know? That he, because my cancer was so aggressive the first time when I was pregnant, oh. He thought there was a very, very high risk that at some point 
it would come back. And so isn't it really interesting how two people go into a room and he obviously knew what I was thinking because I shared it. And rightly, he never shared it because it wasn't the right right thing to do. Um, but yeah, my, my cancer had come back, but this time a very different, different story. So stage four, incurable. And when he showed me my skeleton on the screen and your skeleton is obviously white, and the amount of black that I saw where I had tumours. So all those aches and pains from my running were where I had tumours. And he sa- I, I said to him, oh my God, I went for a run this morning, at which point he was horrified because my pelvis was black. And he was like, I, I don't know how you didn't actually physically fall apart. Um, and he was like, that's it, you can never run again. And so that started a really, really tough journey for me as you know, because immediately I was back on the most aggressive cocktail of treatment in lockdown um, and had to tell my teenage boys that I have incurable stage four cancer. So that was that was truly devastating. But I decided that I wasn't going to tell very many people. So most of the people that we worked with didn't know for quite a long time. And I decided that I was going to carry on working, which I did four days a week. So I had treatment every Friday, and then worked, um, worked Monday to Thursday. And for my children, particularly, I decided I was going to keep things as normal as I could because I really didn't want them to go through seeing me unwell. Right, right. Because I've thought about this a lot. You know, I, I mean, and you're extraordinary. I mean, you literally, you know, I, I was on the board of Macmillan for a long time. I've met lots of people with cancer. I have never met anyone like you to go through it, to go through what you went through, and still go through because it's not, you know, the thing is most people like you did with your first cancer, you go through it shit, but there's an end and actually you get better. It's fine. Yeah. And yours doesn't get better. It, it mm. starts getting worse. Yeah. Um, you have side effects all the time, but you carried on working. And I, and I am really interested as to why I can see the bit from the boys point of view and that, you know, they were, doing their levels and GCSEs. So it's a very critical time for them. They, um, you know, they bored. But but why did you, why do you carry on working? Well, I think that comes back to why we've called this living between the windows, because when you're going through something like that, my Friday, Saturday and Sunday, I used to feel awful every week. Um, you know, you don't go through chemotherapy every week, radiotherapy, everything that I was having without feeling truly awful. But then you have these windows when actually you feel okay. And so I decided I was going to live between the windows and the bits that weren't totally bad and totally awful. I was going to try and live my life as normally as I as I can. And I don't think any of us, if people are listening to, to this now in sort of June 2022, what mm-hmm. Deborah James, Bow Babe's done for those of us who have stage four cancer. She's a great example of someone who's done that. You know, she she put you know she brilliantly portrays, you know, her strength, but we all know from the treatment that she's having and that she's had that in between those windows things have been hard. But she's a great example of you know, you know, you you can live with something that is a terminal diagnosis and you can live really well through it. Um, yeah. not all the time, but but some of the time. And so that's what I decided I was I was going to do. Mm-hmm. 
because the other thing was not only were you living through it and are you living it it's been COVID I know. so you know it's not like we could even just come down and see you because no. that's too you know it was it was too dangerous and you know your friends have been amazing particularly I know some of your girlfriends but yeah. really they couldn't even come as all see you either so that did you feel quite lonely yeah I, I, I did and I think I think everyone who's been through cancer treatment in the last two years it's been really really hard because you can't have anyone sitting with you and the nurses are doing such an amazing job but they're so busy that they don't have that time to come and sit and have a cup of tea with you when you're hot you know you're hooked up for three or four hours at a time so so yeah that that has been a real difference to the first time I went through went through treatment um, and I saw my oncologist Charles last week and we were working out because my my treatment now I'm, I'm not having chemo at the moment by having lots of immunotherapy and autoimmune therapy it's, it's all intravenous it's quite invasive therapy mm. we worked out that this Friday I am having my 106th cycle of invasive cancer treatment so it, it it, it, it is a marathon, um, but mm-hmm. I, I do think about it every day, but only for a moment. And then I, I genuinely am living between the windows. I'm doing loads of fun stuff. He's horrified that I'm taking my boys off into the jungle and surfing in July. He's like, he, said to, he said to me, please don't bungee jump. The only thing you can't do is bungee jump. I'm like, no, Charles, I'm not going to do that. Um, Good. But then he's smiling and he's like, oh, he says, I'm so glad that you're doing all these things and that, you know, you're, that, you're, that you're living because a lot of people don't. And that for a lot of people, they just stop everything. Um, and I think, why would you? You know, you know, we're, yeah. we're at that pivotal moment of our business that, you know, we just want to take it to the next level and build it. I'm at that point when I've got a couple of years of my children left at home before they totally fly the nest. So I want to make the most of them. So, yeah, I, I think my, my real motto is you've got to live between between the windows. And I would say to someone, you know, if you if you're having a bad day accept that bad day but then go go and live between it you know go and do something really joyful between it because I I think that's just so important Mm. and I'm you know I I I love that I really really love it I think loads of people listening it will really resonate but I think the other thing you just said was just accept it and I think there was one other thing you know we had a conversation earlier on this year and you said when you learned to just go do you know what this is this is the sexual situation it is what it is. There's nothing I can do about it. And once you were able to accept it, somehow it was easier to then go, okay, that's happening. Now I'm going to work out what are the things I can do um, in my life, at home, at work, with my boys, whatever. Um, Tell me a bit about that, because, you know, it's such an easy thing to say, and it's bloody difficult to do. it's really hard to do and I think it's something weirdly that comes with well not weirdly I think it's something that comes with age and experience so I talked earlier about how angry I was in my early 30s to get cancer how I was so angry and when it came back look don't get me wrong I really wish it wasn't my story I really you know more than anything if I had one wish it would be that I didn't have to deal with what I'm dealing with but I do and getting angry and not accepting it, it, it it's not going to change it. it, it I, I, and if anything, it will make it worse because I will get so stressed and consumed by that. 
And so I've chosen, and it is a choice. I think I think that's the thing, Suki, it is a choice. I've chosen to accept it. That that, but as you know, that doesn't mean that I'm not fighting it and I'm not gonna be that one percent that has a different outcome and you know, all, all of all of those things, but I'm choosing to fight the things that I can fight rather than not accepting this is happening to me. Uh, and yeah. I think what that's done from a business perspective is it's definitely made me better at my job because when you accept the things that you can't change and you really focus on the things that you can change and make them brilliant, it kind of frees you up. It really does free you up to be a slightly better version of yourself. And I wish I hadn't learned it the way that I had. And if anyone's listening and can take a bit of it, um, hopefully not going through what I've gone through, but maybe going through difficulties or some challenges and go just accept those things that you can't change but really really change those things that you want to and if something's not that important isn't going to make a difference then don't do it just you know don't don't do it yeah no I I think what I see is you you we talked about this earlier you're very strategic you're very good on strategy you're very good on focus you're even more focused on being focused now than you were before um, you have extraordinary boundaries, yeah. which I, you know, look, we all admire. I particularly admire because my boundaries are rubbish. I am better than I have ever been in my whole life. Um, and I have to say that various people have helped me. You helped me. Um, but I am terrible. Um, but you are very, very, very good. And yeah. I think, you know, it's and they're all things that, you know what, we spent all our time talking in our workshops about helping companies do and you are a brilliant embodiment of that um you know and I and I've learned so much from you by seeing the reality and the outcome of doing that and our business is seeing it as well you know which is really really good um but you know and this is quite hard I think to talk about this how do you balance the bit between going okay I'm going to live every day um I don't but I don't know how long every days I've got you know because I think people who are roughly our age and and I've had this conversation with several people you know they kind of go look I'll be whatever I might get to 80 and if I don't smoke and I don't drink so much I might get to 90 um you know I think that's quite difficult for probably you to get there um but but you don't know and but you are, you must be much more aware of your own mortality. How do you balance that? How do you plan that? Or do you just go, I don't do that? Um, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure anyone can balance it. And, and I'm not sure anybody can, can, can plan it. I, th- I think you would have to be superhuman to, to do that. And, and funny, I was talking to Charles about it, about it last week. Mm. And it, it, it's not an exact science you know nobody can tell me how long I've got they can they can give me an idea and so I, I I know I know what that I know what that is but of course there are always exceptions and there are always advances in science and so you 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 never quite know but it has it has made me live much more closer to now and so some of the things that I was maybe thinking Oh, I'll do that in five years, or I'll do that in um, I'm doing now. So you won't know this, um, but I am in the process, and this has literally happened really quickly. I know we're running out of time, 
but you, you've, you've been to my house, you've been to stay with me. Mm-hmm. So I am selling my house. It's, it's a family house. So I, I got divorced a few years ago, so I need to sell house. But I have bought the land that goes with my house off my ex-husband. And it has a huge, big um, riding stable um, on there, actually where, yeah. Princess, where Princess Anne learned to ride. Because um, wow. she's been to Benenden Girls' School, and I live around the corner from Benenden, Benenden Girls' School. And over the Jubilee weekend, this weekend, there's a big viewing box in the barn, and there's a, there's a white plaque underneath the viewing box in my field Ooh. with an E on it, which has got to wow. be cool. It's got to um, be cool. Got to be. Anyway, I am um, all, thing, all things going in my favour, and let's face it, I need a bit of luck. Um, I'm building us a house. Oh, wow. That's very different. I'd I'd always wanted to do it. And the time is now. And so I am going to do it. Um, And Mm -hmm. we're we're putting in the planning at the moment. And it's all happening at a breakneck speed. Um, And everyone everyone knows my condition. I'm like, this can't be a three-year project. I've got to do it really quickly and be in. Um, And so... Yeah, I'm, I guess that's me dealing with it, if you if you like, because I'm doing all the things that people would go, you're absolutely crazy to do that. That's going to be so stressful. I was like, that's not stressful compared to what I deal with from my health. I won't get stressed by it. It's going to be super exciting. So, yeah, that's that, that's what I'm doing. I'm kind of bringing things forward because why not? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why not? And do you know what? It's It's extraordinary, isn't it? And it's... It's so challenging that to do that kind of thing, you almost always have to have a situation like yours where it makes you live your life like that. But, you know, how amazing and how inspiring that that's what you're doing. Yeah, Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Watch this place. Well, absolutely. We want to see that. Oh, I'm going to come down and have a look at that. (laughs) Excellent. Uh, Look, Helen, thank you so much for sharing so much today. You know, we talk a lot about the benefit of leaders telling their story, being authentic, sharing what it's like for them. And, you know, very few people are as open as you are. Um, And actually, I know you're a very private person. So opening up is a big thing. Um, but thank you for doing that today because I think it will make a big difference. I know a lot of our clients, even though even now they kind of know what you've yeah. been through, they have no idea. So yeah. they will be very surprised and just how much you're going through still now. Um, but you know, I love working with you, and I think Let's Reset is a very, very special place. You know, somebody described it after our event last week as it's a very special thing that we are doing, and I think it is. It is. But, um, you know, you're a very special person. So I'm very glad and delighted that we work together. And thank you for sharing your story today. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed Reset the Podcast, I'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues, friends and family. Reset the Podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production. Executive producer is Richard Larson, with me, Suki Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor, Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits and voiceover artist, Talitha Penny. Music provided by Audio Network. <laughs>